Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick up with verse 21, and I'm going to read down to verse 43. And the big question we're going to be wrestling with today is a question of waiting. And specifically, we're going to ask the question, why is Jesus asking you to wait? Why is he asking you to wait? We're going to see several people's lives and their their stories highlighted in this portion of Scripture, certainly people that were being asked to wait for something from Jesus, but let's ask that in a personal way as well. Why is Jesus asking you to wait? So Mark chapter 5, starting with verse 21, this is what we read. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be able to look at your word together today. We're grateful for the events that are recorded here and the life stories that are revealed to us in this portion of Scripture, because ultimately these are things that you use to help us understand more about yourself. You help us understand more about the the purposes for which you sent your Son into this world. So Father, we pray that as we think about these things and as we wrestle with this concept of waiting, 
We pray, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom and insight into your perfect plan. And we thank you, Lord, for your presence with us right now. We commit this time to you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the other day, my wife and I actually had the opportunity to reunite with a friend from college that she has seen more recently than I have, but I haven't seen this friend in 23 years. I was doing the math. It's actually 23 and a half years since I've last seen this friend. Uh, she teaches with us both now over at the university, so I'm thinking we will probably start to see her with some more regularity, but in the midst of chatting about what her life looks like now and some of the things that are going on in her, her day-to-day life and things going on with her husband and kids and everything going on with their life and ministry, we also did some reminiscing back to our college years and made some observations about some of the differences that we notice about student life now and student life back then. And don't you do that when you see people that you haven't seen in a long time? You catch up real quick and then immediately it goes into reminiscing. And so we're reminiscing about some of those differences. But one of the biggest differences, and I think all of us could probably notice a similarity with this in other areas of life too, but one of the big differences that we thought was kind of obvious was the convenience that students get to experience now that they get to register for classes and activities online. That wasn't an option that we had uh, back in the, the early and, and mid-90s when we were students, because when we were students back then, if we wanted to register for classes or if we wanted to sign up for other things, it usually involved waiting in a very long line for a face-to-face conversation with somebody. And I remember I didn't think much about it. It was actually a social experience. And as we were talking about this, it dawned on us, we were like, wait a second, that's actually, actually how we became friends. We met in one of those long lines when we had to get our student IDs. And so we were laughing about that. But now, fast forward to present day, and I have to admit that, as most people do, I actually do appreciate the time-saving capacity of modern conveniences. I don't mind the fact that some of those things saved me time. But I think I could also admit that there were certain benefits that came with being forced to wait a little longer for things than I'm typically forced to wait for those things even now. Waiting, as much as we don't always want to do it, waiting could actually be highly beneficial, but it's not always easy. And even when I was thinking about this this week, a song came to my mind. Anyone uh, grow up listening to Tom Petty? All right, half the congregation. This is why I love serving here. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Literally half of you just gave a good nod. Well, do you remember a song by him? It was just called The Waiting, and uh, the, the, the main part of the chorus was, he says, the waiting is the hardest part. The waiting is the hardest part. Now it's in your mind. It's going to be like an earworm. I didn't even sing it, and I'm not going to sing it, but it's going to be in your head one way or another. You're going to end up hearing it on the radio this week and be like, what a coincidence. There's no coincidences. Anyway, he says, the waiting is the hardest part. And I think we could agree that that sentiment is something that's very easy to identify with. The waiting is the hardest part. Plain and simple, we don't like waiting. I don't like waiting. You probably don't like waiting either, even though it can be highly, highly beneficial. Now, take this a little bit deeper and just think about some of the things that you and I are experiencing in our day-to-day lives, because I'm guessing that there are things that you have been praying about, things that as of yet you haven't received an answer, even though maybe you've been lifting up that specific prayer about that specific subject, maybe even for years. You know, maybe you've been praying for healing, and the only answer you've received from the Lord at this point is, wait. Or maybe you've been praying for a family member 
who really isn't on the right path and you're genuinely concerned about them and their, their well-being. And the only thing you've heard about uh, that whole situation from the Lord at this point is just, wait, how are you doing with that answer? When that's the answer that the Lord gives you, when He doesn't give you a direct yes or a direct no, but the only answer He's given you at this point is, wait, would you rather that He say something different? Or um, as you look at it, And as you watch the process he's been bringing you through, have you actually started to see some of the benefits you're experiencing and maybe even the deepening of your faith as you're being forced to trust the Lord over the course of a longer season? We're not the first people that the Lord's asked to wait for something. And again, odds are there is something in your life that that's been the Lord's answer to your prayer. He simply told you, wait. You'll see when you see right? But we're not the first people that the Lord's asked to wait. There are many examples in Scripture, and you could go all all through the Old Testament and New Testament, many examples that we could point to where where people were forced to wait for a, a, a set period of time for the Lord's miraculous intervention in their circumstances, things that they were praying about for a while. Some of these people, you know, you can look at some of these instances and say, all right, well, some of these people only had to pray for a short time, and the Lord gave them their answer in a short time, but others, and in fact many, were asked to pray for years. And then there are even others that, if you you want to be really technical about it, their prayers were answered, but their prayers were not answered during their lifetime. You ever think about the fact that some of the things that you and I are praying for, the Lord's answer is yes, just not during your earthly years. And it's interesting to note that in Scripture, it talks about the fact that our prayers don't get wasted. They come before the Lord. It's like they're collected before Him, and He answers them in His timing. And there are things that you may pray about during the course of your life that'll be answered in the lifetime of your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or your double great-grandchildren, because that's how the Lord's perfect timing happens to work. So there are people even in Scripture that we could see examples of who prayed things during their natural life, but those things weren't answered until after their years on this earth were completed. And when you get to the portion of Scripture that we just read together, and we're going to revisit it a portion at a time this morning, when you get to Mark chapter 5, when you look at verse 21 down to verse 43, that portion of Scripture, it gives us examples of several people who were asked to wait for their prayers to be answered. Now, look at the opening verses that we started with this morning. Let me reread verses 21 through 24 of Mark chapter 5, because there it says this, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Now, This portion of Mark's gospel, when you look at the things that precede it, it's actually continuing the record of events that took place on the different sides of the Sea of Galilee, because you have things taking place in the previous chapters that are happening at the Sea of Galilee on different sides. Jesus had actually just returned from his brief visit to the Gerasene region, and now he was likely back in the city of Capernaum. That's most likely where he was, where these things were taking place. This is also an area where he had developed a strong reputation at this point as a teacher who taught 
with authority, and in addition to the fact that he was teaching with authority in a way that people were like, we never heard somebody teach like this before, he was also developing a reputation as a worker of miracles. People saw him do miraculous things, and they wanted to see more and more and more of that. And so upon his arrival, we're told here that crowds of curious people began swarming him again. And it makes me wonder if some people were actually watching out for him, and as they saw the boat approaching and realized who it was, words started spreading, and then the crowd started forming. And one such person in the crowd stood out. There were obviously all kinds of people of all kinds of stations of life, all kinds of statuses, all kinds of vocations, all sorts of ages in these crowds. But one person in the crowd here in particular stands out. We're told here it was a man named Jairus who had an esteemed position of leadership in the local synagogue. Uh, he was, when you look at Jairus, who he was, if he was going to hold that position in the local synagogue, that means he was a well-respected, well-known man of authority in that area. And the Scripture tells us that he comes before Jesus and he bows before him, indicating the, the fact that he believes that Jesus is worthy of honor, and he begs Jesus to heal his daughter. He says that his daughter is at the point of death, and he just begs him, can you just heal her? Knowing that he's healed other people, knowing that he's done all sorts of miraculous things there in their region, his, he's saying his daughter's near the point of death, and he begs Jesus to heal her. And Jesus agreed to go with him, and they begin walking toward Jairus' home, where Jesus has now agreed that he's going to at least go with him. I don't know that he gives, her, he gives him all the details right away, but he starts walking with him. And naturally, as I'm picturing that moment, how fast do you suppose you would walk if you were Jairus? And Jesus had just agreed to come with you to your home to heal your daughter who was near the point of death. I imagine this was a quick pace that they were walking. Quick pace. They're trying to get there as quickly as possible, swift, aggressively, urgent, trying to meet this need. But almost as soon as they begin walking, the Scripture tells us that their journey was interrupted. Now, have you ever had a moment like that where you've just got a million things to do and an interruption comes and you try your best to maintain a good testimony and a good demeanor and you find yourself saying, okay, I don't want to be rude. My patience will last four more seconds. Now we're down to three, down to two, and one. Now we're gone, right? Well, when you look at Mark chapter 5, when you look at verse 24 to 27, I'll just summarize it. There it tells us Jesus and Jairus were interrupted as they're, I believe, aggressively now moving toward Jairus' home. And it tells us here that a woman who had a bleeding ailment that had lingered for 12 years, she approached Jesus secretly. Now, according to the teaching of Leviticus 15, and you could read this on your own if you choose to, but in Leviticus chapter 15, under the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, this woman, because of her disease, was considered ritually unclean. Her condition made her ritually unclean among the people. And if you were considered unclean among the people in this context, that had some implications. So that meant that she was required to avoid close contact with other people. That was one of the requirements. It also meant she wasn't allowed to gather for worship in the synagogue. Not allowed to do that. If you're ritually unclean, you're not allowed to do that. And typically when somebody was ritually unclean, it was only for a short period of time wasn't always something that would linger for 12 years. So imagine this being something that typically was only a short period of time, but now this is a long period of time, and it's stretching out with no, no apparent end. It also meant that 
anyone who knew that she had this condition would also make a point of avoiding contact with her, lest they would also be considered ritually unclean. So there are all kinds of implications to this woman dealing with this this medical issue. And so here this woman is, hearing that Jesus has now appeared back on the shore, that his boat has come across the Sea of Galilee, that he's right there in their midst, she's frustrated with her condition, and this woman took advantage of the fact that there was a commotion. She took advantage of the fact that there was a crowd gathering around Jesus. I actually appreciate the shrewd nature of this woman. And it's kind of interesting because you don't know what you would do until you get desperate enough to do something. Under normal circumstances, maybe she wouldn't have done something like this. But given enough time, given enough desperation, sometimes when you're desperate, you'll get creative. And this woman got shrewd. Now, she'd been patient. Twelve years is a long time to be waiting for some help. But she takes advantage of this. She takes advantage of the commotion here, the crowd that's surrounding Jesus, and she uses this opportunity to get close to Jesus just so she could touch his garment. Because she believes that if she touches that garment, she's going to be healed. And by the way, that was a common belief among the Jewish people of the time. They believed that, that the prophets, that even if you, just, if you just got close to their... And there's examples of this when you look in, in, uh, in Scripture of certain things like this. So I understand why they believe this. But they believe that if you even just got close to their garment, if you could touch their garment, miraculous things would at times happen. So they, she believed this. And so her... Her intention here, her goal was, I'm just going to get close to him, and I'll try and be really sneaky about it, but if I could just touch his garment, then she believed she would be miraculously healed. She had that kind of faith, and so she does this. She works her way through the crowd. Everybody's crowding together. No one's really paying attention to who she is in that moment, and she reaches, and she touches his garment, and she was right, but she didn't get away with doing this in secret. She was healed but she wasn't able to keep it to herself because the scripture here tells us that Jesus reacted. And when you look at verse 28, it says, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And then verse 29 says, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body. So she could just tell. I'm sure discomfort had left, pain had left. It says, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And it says, and Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And I I love verse 31 because the disciples are like, really? (laughs) There's like a million people surrounding you right now. Who touched your garments? For real? But they said, it says in verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Can you imagine giving Jesus sass like this? Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> What's your deal, disciples? But keep in mind that they also had a very close relationship. And I, do, you know, I don't know that they were saying this disrespectfully. I think they're saying this friend to friend. And looking at them like, come on, come on. You say unique things that we're unfamiliar with, but really, who touched your garment? I don't know, maybe thousands of people in the past four minutes, right? But for 12 long, uncomfortable, embarrassing years, this woman sought the help of doctors, the Scripture tells us, and none of them were able to heal her ailment. Nobody could help her. It also tells us in Scripture that their intervention only succeeded in making the problem worse. So it kept getting worse. So not only was no one able to help her, but the problem kept getting worse and worse and worse, but her faith in Jesus 
resulted in her healing. And, uh, and when you look at Mark 5, verse 32, it then tells us, it says, and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. So keep in mind, within just moments here, he's already had Jairus fall down before him and ask for his help. And now this woman is falling down before him. It says, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She just fesses up. She just confesses, look, I did it. I'm the one that did it. And he said to her, and I don't know what her reaction or what she thought his reaction was going to be, but look at the tender way Jesus replies. It says in verse 34, and he said to her, daughter. So even right there, the fact that you just start off with daughter, right? Daughter. So you see affection there from Christ for this woman. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Her long wait was over. She was now well. And the other thing that I think is really cool about what takes place in that interchange there is that Jesus was not ashamed to let it be publicly known that he had just had contact with her. Now, what has her life been like for the past 12 years? Everybody avoiding contact with her because if you admit publicly you've just had contact with this woman in any capacity, that means now you are ritually unclean and are going to be treated like you're ostracized, just like she was. And yet Jesus, what does he do? He's not ashamed to let it be publicly known that he, just had, that he indeed had contact with her, which, again, that's another demonstration of his care and his compassion. I think that's a beautiful thing. But the blessing, in addition to her being physically healed, what he had done in acknowledging that publicly was he was now allowing her to begin normalizing the process of having contact with other people. He was saying, she's fine. She's fine. That process could begin where she could restore relationships. Twelve years, that's a long time to wait, wouldn't you say? Long time to wait for anything, right? But it was certainly worth it. Her infirmity, when you think about this, because obviously that was a difficulty for her for a good long time, but what her infirmity actually did, the way in which it was used by God, was that it put her heart in the perfect position to recognize her need for Jesus. Her heart was in the perfect spot to recognize that need. And the amazing thing is is that's a relationship she still benefits from. It's a relationship she benefits from eternally. So 12 years of discomfort pales to the scope of eternity. Most people go through life hoping to never have any discomfort whatsoever. And some people actually go through life minimizing discomfort considerably. And what they end up discovering is that they went through their life basically thinking that their source of hope was just the avoidance of pain. And you get to the end of it and you realize, no, you actually missed the whole point. One of the things that the Lord does that's an amazing thing is that He uses our seasons of trial or testing or discomfort to demonstrate our genuine need for Him. And so sometimes, even though we want those things to end quickly, what they're actually doing is they're doing a preparatory work in our heart, preparing our hearts to recognize just how much we need Him. And your season of waiting, as you're waiting for whatever thing, whatever thing you've been praying about, whatever you've been going through, your season of waiting may specifically be doing that for your heart right now. And it's interesting, when you look at this woman, it tells us that she had tried doctor after doctor after doctor. She'd used all her resources. Everything she tried failed. In fact, her situation was getting worse. 
And I think it's kind of interesting because our situation isn't very much different because one at a time, what ends up happening is we start to exhaust every earthly solution we can think of. Over time, we exhaust every earthly solution we can think of, and it's then that we start to look at Jesus as our only real hope. Those things have to be peeled away. And one at a time, we begin admitting that the things of this world that we reached out to were actually leaving us off in a worse position than we were in. But then we start to see that Jesus is the one who meets our greatest need and that Jesus is the only real solution that lasts. And so this woman went through a lot of difficulty. She went through a lot of trial. But from the perspective of eternity, I bet you she looks at that and she's grateful for every minute of it. It's usually when we're on the other side of these things that we look back and we're like, oh no, I see the purpose. One of the things, I've mentioned this before, one of the things that I've been praying about is that the Lord would start teaching me to say thank you to him before I see these things resolve in my own life. Because I've already seen a whole bunch of other things resolve. So when new things come up, it's one of those things that's really been a prayer of mine all throughout the course of this past year. Lord, even before I see resolution, help me look at these things and just say, I have faith that you have a purpose for every trial or every calamity or every difficulty I will ever face. And just like I can look at every previous one and say, no, I'm glad for it now, and I learned something from it, and it, it was something you used to draw me closer to you or strengthen my faith, I want to have that perspective in the midst of the pain, not just after the pain subsides. Now, this scripture also tells us here, it says, while he was still speaking, so he's still speaking to this woman, he's still having this conversation, he's still talking to her, blessing her, reminding her in the midst of all of this that he's with her and showing people that she's safe to go near again. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So that momentary interaction that Jesus had with this woman in that particular moment of time, that actually was something that cost some precious time because there was an urgent need. And so this interruption, you could look at that and you could say, wow, that cost some precious time. And I imagine Jairus in the midst of that was feeling very eager for Jesus to get on his way and get to the house. And I, felt, I feel like Jairus was probably looking at this and saying, like, this is not time we can spare. I realize everybody wants your help, Jesus, but this truly is not, this isn't time we can spare. But yet it doesn't tell us he complained or anything like that. But it does reveal that while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, Jairus received news that his daughter had actually died. And as this news is being relayed to Jairus, Scripture reveals to us that Jesus overheard this. He heard it being said. And I imagine in that moment as Jairus, I mean, what would your face look like if you received that news? You'd be crushed. Your head would hang low, your face would contort, the tears would start flowing. And as Jesus overhears Jairus receiving this news, and I'm sure his face and his body start reacting, Jesus seeks to comfort him quickly, very quickly. He intervenes right in the moment. He bolsters his faith. He reminds him he didn't have anything to fear. In fact, he says, do not fear, only believe. It's basically the same as looking at him and saying, like, relax, Jairus, relax. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. I heard what they said too. Don't fear, only believe. You came to me in faith to begin with. Keep that faith. Don't fear, only believe. Let's keep our walk going. Let's go to your house. 
So as Jesus and Jairus, they continue walking toward his home. Scripture also tells us Jesus didn't allow the crowd to follow with them. Did you notice that? He's like, everybody stay back. In fact, he only allowed three other people to come with him. And these are three people that you see throughout the Gospels that Jesus kind of takes in as an inner circle, Peter, James, and John. So they're allowed to go with him. The other disciples are not allowed to go. The crowds are not allowed to go. And when they get to the house, there's another crowd that's already gathered at that house. And we're told that it's a crowd of mourners. They had already gathered to loudly grieve the passing of the only daughter of this well-respected man. And they're outside the house and they're grieving. By the way, during that era, it was considered a way to honor somebody if you joined in the grieving. And there were actually people who were professionally hired. So in our day and age, we hire people like funeral directors to help us in the midst of our grief. Well, what they would do during that time, they would hire professional mourners who would kind of lead the mourning. And so you have people there that are adept at mourning. You have people, the scripture tells us that the mourning that was taking place outside the house was loud. It was loud. They get there. Elsewhere in scripture, it says that there was even a flute that was playing. This professional mourning, this group that was mourning as well, they're already gathered. They're loudly grieving the passing of Jairus' daughter. And it was very obvious to everybody her life had ended. You know, she had died. They sent word. They had checked on her. She had passed. But when Jesus arrived, what he did was he decided to foreshadow the ministry that he was about to have in that household and the miracle that he was about to do. And he said to the crowd, he said, she's only sleeping. She's only sleeping. (laughs) And what did they do when he said that? Scripture tells us they looked at him and they laughed. They're like, we're pretty sure we know a dead person when we've seen one. She's dead. But just like the people of our day do, the crowd laughed at him. And even in our day, what do people do? They laugh and they mock at Christ's miraculous power. They laugh and they mock at his divine nature. This is a common activity in our day-to-day culture. It was common at that point as well. Jesus tells them something. They should just listen to what he has to say. But it tells us here that they laughed at him. When you look at verse 40, it says this. It says, and they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. They laughed at him. So where do they get to go? On the outside. If you don't believe, you don't get to see the miracle. Plain and simple. But who does he bring in that's allowed to witness this? Peter, James, John, Jairus, and Jairus' wife. If you want to see the miracle, you've got to believe. You're going to laugh? Step outside, right? Step outside. He put them all outside, and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was, And it says in verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. That's a beautiful thing to witness, isn't it? Six people walked into the presence of Jairus' dead daughter. Jesus, Jairus, Jairus' wife, Peter, James, and John. And this small group actually gets to watch as Jesus takes that little girl by the hand. An action, by the way, that would have amazed the people in this group because, again, contact with a dead body under the Levitical law also made somebody unclean. And so typically when someone would die, people were resistant to be in contact with that body because... 
that would make them ritually unclean. And what does Jesus do? He walks right up and he takes the little girl by the hand. As he takes her by the hand, he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. You know what's really cool when you see moments like this, when you see Jesus raise people from death? I've heard some theologians theorize on this, and I think they might be right. Notice that he's very specific when he says arise. He says, little girl, I say to you, arise. When he, wrote, when he resurrected Lazarus from the grave, what does he do? He doesn't just say, come forth. He says, Lazarus. He uses his name, Lazarus, come forth. Some theologians, and if I can lump myself into their category, some theologians plus one dollar store pastor think the same thing about this. What would have happened if he just said, arise? Maybe a mass resurrection of just everyone that had died, right? This is the one who spoke creation into existence. So he's very specific. Little girl, I say to you, arise. The time of the general resurrection is not yet. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And the scripture says she immediately rose from death. And she was completely healed of whatever illness had caused her her death in the first place. She's able to walk around. Apparently, she even rises with an appetite showing that her health is restored, because what does Jesus encourage them to do? Hey, give her something to eat. Give her something to eat. Demonstrating her health is completely restored. You know, it's interesting when you look at the the people that are highlighted in this portion of Scripture, because for 12 long years, you have a woman with a bleeding disease. And it's interesting because that's the entire length of time of the age of of Jairus' daughter. She's 12 years old. So for her entire life, that woman has been dealing with this bleeding disease, and now you have this, this uh, young girl who's 12 years old. And, and here's the thing. The text doesn't tell us this. But I'll tell you what I wonder when I read this portion of Scripture. And I tried to look and see if there was anyone else that had this thought. I was able to find some others that have asked this same question. So I guess, again, in this, maybe I'm not alone. But it's something I've wondered for a while. I've wondered if Jairus' daughter may have had some sort of a progressive ailment over the course of her 12 years of life that gradually contributed to her death. I wondered if, if maybe for that same 12-year period of time, that one woman was dealing with that bleeding disease, and Jairus' daughter may have been dealing with her own ailment that gradually resulted in her death. And I, I couldn't help but wonder if maybe for that same 12-year period of time, if both of these families were praying for miracles and their prayers were answered on the same day. It seems entirely possible to me. When you look at the companion scriptures in Luke and in Matthew, it seems entirely possible to me. I don't know. It just seems possible to me. But when I look at that, regardless, whether it's a day you've been praying or whether it's been 12 years or something else, how long have you been praying and waiting on the Lord to give you an answer for something really important that you've been coming to Him on behalf of this need or on this person? How long have you been waiting? Is it something that you would say, well, you know, this is something that's important, but I've I've been praying for about a week? Or are there certain things you look at and you'd say, no, I've been praying about a year on this one? Or maybe there are some things that you could look at and say, I'm about a decade deep on this prayer request. Or maybe there are some of these things that you've been dealing with that you would look at and say, no, the Lord's asked me to wait for 12 years or even longer for an answer. 
And if he asked you to wait that long, would it be too long? Would it be too long? Again, like that theologian Tom Petty once said, the waiting may be the hardest part. But there's great blessing in it. It's not a bad thing. It may be the hardest part, but it's not a bad thing. There's a blessing in it. Because again, Jesus is using it to strip away the lies and strip away the false assurances that we might be tempted to rely on. He's showing us that he actually can be trusted. I imagine he's allowing your faith to be stretched in order to make it strong in order to make it an unwavering confidence in his presence and in his power and in his ultimate deliverance. If you're waiting on the Lord right now for something, understand that you are not the first person to wait and understand that there are other people waiting right now. But also understand this, it's not a bad thing. The Lord will answer things in accordance with His will and in His time. But His goal for you and for me is that during the course of our earthly life, we learn one big lesson, and that's to trust Him. That's what He's trying to use your life to develop, your faith in Him. And if you get out of this world with your faith in Jesus Christ intact, you've been blessed with what you needed most. You thought you were praying for something else, and the Lord used that circumstance to meet your deepest need, to teach you to trust in Him. If you get out of this life with someone who has genuine, sincere faith in Jesus Christ that's been tested by circumstances and stretched over time, you're a blessed person indeed. And when you look at these people in this portion of Scripture, they obviously dealt with difficult things. And by God's grace and His timing, they had the opportunity to witness those things resolve. You may see your prayer requests resolve soon, maybe very soon. Or maybe it'll be off at a distance. Or maybe you'll be part of that group of people that gets to see these things resolved after your natural lifetime. But understand this, the Lord hears every prayer that's brought before Him. And he's teaching us through these circumstances that he can be relied upon and he can be trusted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to really just give some thought to the way you operate in the lives of humanity. Lord, when we look at our needs, when we look at the things that we wrestle with, we, we look at these things and we think, we just wonder why. We wonder why you allow these things to take place in our lives. We wonder why some of them you allow to stretch out for such a long period of time. Maybe we even think things like, you know, if I was God, I think I'd do it this way. And it just shows, Lord, how much we, we don't understand. You see, you see all things at once. You see the resolution. You see the start. You see everything in between. You see the net effect on your redemptive plan for humanity. You see how our trials are actually used to develop our faith. You watch other people as they go through life in relative ease, and yet their, their faith seems non-existent or paper thin. And Lord, you want good things for your children. We know that. 
But we know that the goal of this life is that we would learn to trust you. And so, Lord, we pray that in the midst of hard things that you would help us to do that, just like the people in this portion of Scripture demonstrated that they, that they did. And we know, Lord, that that wasn't a spot they came to on their own. Your Spirit prompted their heart to have that kind of faith. And we pray that by your grace that your Holy Spirit would enable us to have that kind of faith as well, that we would trust you completely, that we would be satisfied with whatever answer you give to us, whether it's an immediate yes, whether you tell us a direct no, or whether you ask us to wait for some unknown period of time to us, but known to you. Lord, we're just so grateful for the fact that all throughout your word, we get to see examples of your compassion. It reminds us of how you interact with us and how you treat us. Lord, we know we don't deserve your goodness. We've done everything under the sun that can be done to blaspheme your name and rebel against you and go in our own direction and essentially worship ourselves or worship the creation that you have created so that it would give you glory. And yet, instead of worshiping the creator, you, we've worshiped what you've created. Lord, we need your help. We need you to open up our eyes to see these things. We need you to soften our hearts so that we would recognize our need for the direct intervention of your son, Jesus Christ, through whom we receive the gift of salvation. So, Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at these things from your word today. We pray that you'd remind us of these truths. And, Father, I just pray for every one of us gathered here. I realize that we're all over the map. Some of us maybe aren't at a spot of faith yet. Maybe some of us have been walking with you for years Maybe some of us are new to even considering these things. Wherever our heart is right now, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, deepen our trust in you, and help us to walk with you with complete confidence that you have our lives and the lives of those around us in your hand, and that you're working things out together for your glory and for our good, and that we can trust you to do that. Thank you, Lord, for all these things and for the privilege to look at these things from your word together today. We commit ourselves to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.